Hey everyone, today's guest is the wise and wonderful Carla Hall. I had so much fun talking to her about food, love, love of food, and everything in between. I just adore Carla and find her to be such a delight. She even managed to convince me that celery can be delicious. Later in the episode, my co-host April Beyer of Level Connections offers her very qualified assistance to a caller who keeps having bad luck with men who are still attached to their former partners. I'm really excited to tell you that our Deal Breakers game will be available May 11th. That's tomorrow. You can find a link in the show notes or get it wherever games and books are sold. I can't wait to hear what you think. Okay, here she is, Carla Hall. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Hi, Carla. What's up? I'm so happy you're podcasting with me today. Thank you. I can't even tell you how excited I am to be here because I remember when Unqualified came out and you came on The Chew October 2017. You were doing the podcast and you did the book and here you are. And then here I am. I had the best time. I get really anxious about doing those kinds of shows. Mm -hmm. You guys on The Chew... That is one of the highlights of my, like, on-camera, as-myself experiences. Thank you. You guys were so kind to me, and I had such a blast. And that feels rare. Normally, I'm questioning everything I said, what I wore, the whole deal. This is why I think it was so fun. This is what I think with the Chew and we were saying to people, it gave, especially actors, an opportunity to come and be real and human. You're not going on to talk about a character. You're actually coming on to be yourself. Like, what do you do at home? Do you cook? Everybody eats, right? And it's that connection with food. It was just really nice and you were just so easy and it was so great. I loved you guys so much. And you in general, I loved watching you on Top Chef. And my experience guest hosting the competition was just awesome. I felt so lucky. Yes. And you know what really took me by surprise as a fan of the show? I was still astounded with the quality of food. Mm. Every dish, like everybody brought their game. Right, right. So I want to talk to you about your experience with that kind of intensity. But I also would love to open with, instead of me attempting to put words in your mouth, (laughs) would you tell us about your philosophy with food? You know, I talk about cooking with love. And I remember being interviewed and somebody said to me, so what is this thing you call cooking with love? Like it's um, something <laughs> born in a test tube or whatever. And really for me, you have to love the thing that you're doing, especially when you're giving it to somebody to ingest. So if I love the food that I'm making, you're going to love eating it. And it's really a chain of love. Somebody had to grow the food. They're passionate about that. They give it to somebody who's passionate about preparing it. And then you give it to someone who's passionate or at least really interested in eating it. And when you look at that chain, it can't help but to be good. That's what I do. I tell people, you don't want me to do something that I don't want to do. You're going to get indigestion. It's just not going to be good. And so my philosophy is really to cook with love. And it's really about setting an intention to enjoy it. I love that. Will you tell us a little bit about your philosophy in terms of soul food? Well, I believe that soul food is the food of black people. But I also believe that this food comes from the soul 
However, it is the food that was made in this country from Black people. And when people say to me, what is the difference between soul food and Southern food? Yes. Black people. (laughs) (laughs) The difference between soul food and Southern food is Black people. And, you know, people get offended about that. And I said, okay, let me give you an example. There was a friend of mine, his name was Pierre Chiam, and, and he's from Senegal, and he came to the United States about 20 years ago. And when he first came here, he was in New York, and, you know, he was finding pizza, McDonald's. He's like, oh, my gosh, what is this food? And he couldn't wrap his head around it, and he was like, I think I'm going to have to go home. I'm going to starve. He then gets the opportunity to go to South Carolina. And it was in South Carolina where he was seeing okra and this Carolina gold rice and all of these things and greens and sweet potatoes. He was like, oh, food of my people, food from home. All right. So keep that in your head. I will. When you go to Germany, when you go to Italy, when you come from the South, when you go there, do you see the same food there that you see in the South? No, but somebody from Africa can go to the South and see their food from like 20 years ago. What does that tell you? That there is a connection to this food and to these people. And so the other thing that I say about soul food is that it should be capitalized. You know, a lot of times people will do lowercase. Okay, Indian food is capitalized. Greek food is capitalized. Italian food is capitalized because they are connected to a country. What country do you connect to the black people in America? We don't have a country, but if our food is soul food, then it should be capitalized because that is the food of our people. And when I realized that, I just had a sense of pride and belonging and contribution to this culture and to American culture. And sometimes we have to push for it. Even if other people don't believe it, we have to understand our contribution and we have to believe it because it is that pride that gets you through the day a lot of times. I love that idea of a sense of ownership and connection to a country that we all struggle, I think, in different ways to connect ourselves, especially during this time. I've been asking some of our guests, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it, too, what their relationship with the idea of patriotism is. I feel as though we've been given the opportunity for self-critique, and we need to use that. I am a patriotic person in the sense that I believe in the mission of our country, but it constantly has to be examined. Yes, it has to be examined When you are given an opportunity to reflect on your past and you make a decision to move forward in the same way or do you move forward with growth and say, I can change? And I think this summer after George Floyd, everybody is holding their breath saying, which way are we going to go? Are we going to say, oh, this is going to be status quo and I'm good. I'm okay with how we were going, even though all of the warts and flaws are just gleaming. Or are you going to correct and say, you know what, it's going to be ugly, but I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to be in a better place on the other side. And I think that's what sometimes is so painful. And I think that's why we were all grappling with it. Some people were looking for the easy way out just by optics. Oh, I'm for this thing without doing the work. And that is transparent as well, because it's not just saying a thing or putting up a post on social media. You have to actually do the work or have the conversation and talk to somebody who is different than you are. You can't shortcut that. You have to go through it. Carla, I grew up in Washington State, north of Seattle, where there were very few Black people. But thinking about Black Americans and their relationship with patriotism, 
fuck that has to be complicated because like as a white blonde, well, bleach blonde. <laughs> what color is that? Loosely. <laughs> long, long, long time ago. But the continuing disservice, like the 60s with civil rights, 70s with Vietnam, there has been very little opportunity that we have given as a collective for Black people to love our country and to love this idea. I think you're right. But I also think that, you know, I did a course with this woman, Milagros Phillips, and she does a course on racial healing. And she tells this story, and I forget the name of the science of this, but she tells this story. If you take an office and you have the boss who is European or white, and then you have, let's say, the receptionist is black, you have one of the operators or whoever who is Indian, then you have another worker who is Asian. Nobody really is more effective than the other, but you have the European, their growing season is three months out of nine months, right? So their relationship is with the thing, right? The object. And then you have black people in a warm climate. They can grow food, you know, from all these warm climates 12 months a year, but their thing is a relationship with each other. And then you have the, let's say, native indigenous, and it's his relationship with the universe, very spiritual, very connected to the ground. And then you have the Asian, and it's their relationship with the group. So you come into this office, and it is 8 o'clock, and the European boss is like, you all, it's 8 o'clock. What are you all doing? Get to work. Get to work. Right? And then you have the black woman going, hey, how's everybody doing? How you doing? How's everything with you? Are you doing okay today? And then you have the Indians like, okay, let me get centered. Let me see how I'm supposed to move and matriculate through the day. And then you have the Asian guy saying, all right, what's everybody doing? And then that's how I'm going to move. So when you have the people who are in charge of most things, and it is their relationship with an object, a thing, you know, trying to get the most of that thing, you can see why in this country we are having issues. And all of these people of color, even though we've been beat up, we keep coming back to relationships with each other. We can sing, we can come together. I'm not saying that it's all forgiveness, but I am saying that that relationship with each other overcomes and where you can find a way to move forward. It feels like it would be a less lonely environment. Yes. Carla, I love you so much. Wait, are you drinking lemon water? I'm drinking some water with some electrolytes. <laughs> Can I just tell you, the other day I was filming a show and I was so tired and I was getting up at 4.45 because it was in mountain time and I was still working out with my accountability partner, just saying that, and it works, on the East Coast. And so I had to get up at 5 to do my workouts that would normally be at 7. And I was doing this and then I would have a day at work and I wasn't drinking enough water. I wasn't eating enough. And one day I was doing something for the podcast and I was writing something and I was trying to read it. And I was like, I literally cannot read this sentence. Why can't I read it? Am I having a stroke? And I'm sitting here like trying to read the and I couldn't read it. And it turned out I just wasn't hydrated. It was scary. And so now I'm constantly drinking water with electrolytes. I need to start doing that. I know that feeling. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do where something basic <laughs> feels foreign. Yes, yes. Something I want you to think about the best advice you've ever been given and the best advice you could give. Well, the best advice that I have been given is from my grandmother. And she said, it is your job to be happy, not to be rich. 
Oh, God, that feels like somebody took a backpack off my shoulders. And you know, that's how I live my life. It's never about money. And people will challenge and say, you can say that when you have money. No, I said that when I was struggling. And people assume that when you're on television, you have money. You don't get paid for being on like a Today Show or something like that. You don't get paid for even being in magazines. You hope that it's going to turn into something that you're going to get a job from the exposure. But yeah, my grandmother said that. And that's how I live my life. The thing that I would say to others, I always want to tell people to trust their heart. Like, trust your instincts about other people. That's a tough one, isn't it? It is, but I think, and your listeners can do this right now. If you're just sitting, and even if you're busying yourself, but if you just sit and just honestly, it's like, you know what? In this moment, I just want to feel my tailbones on my chair. And how you realize up until you decided to do that, you weren't feeling grounded. You weren't feeling anything. And I think that when we stop and we slow down, we really get a feeling about people and especially women. And a lot of times, for whatever reason, we don't listen to it. And that's why usually if I have a feeling about somebody and I decide to move on, I will write it down. I will tell somebody, I will text somebody. I said, I just want you all to know, this is what I'm thinking about this person. I'm going to move ahead but this is what I'm thinking about this person. And that without fail, it comes back. And they're like, remember when you said, I'm like, I know. I just want to put it down somewhere that I can check myself. And if you have enough times where you go back to that thing that you felt, then hopefully, eventually, you will trust yourself from the giddy up. You won't even have to go back and write it down because you're going to listen to it and move accordingly the first time. Who else do you trust in your life? (sighs) I trust my husband implicitly. He is my biggest fan. I mean, without a doubt, I didn't have to think about it. I trust him. I think I keep people around me who will tell me when I stink. I don't need yes people around me. I'm like, you cannot be around me if you're a yes person. You have to be able to tell me honestly that I stink. And he will, even when I pass gas. He's like, you stink. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Carla, how did you meet? We met on Match.com. You did? We did. Did you feel guarded? I had never done Match. We met in 2006. I was only on there for a week. You were just on there for a week and you met your husband? For one week. One week I was on there. And I was working in a kitchen, so I wasn't at a job where I could be online checking everything. And so I had a friend. I'm sitting here, you know, making something in the kitchen. And she's like, I'm on here checking your Match stuff. I said, yeah, can you read the stuff, whatever? somebody said, can you read? (laughs) And she said, wow, this guy sounds like your husband. And he had written a long tome. What? She did. She literally said that about him. This guy feels like your husband. He had written this long thing versus a wink and a whatever. And interestingly enough, that was like the second day that I was on. And he did a George Costanza because he had done match for about a month, the free month that they give you. He was like, I'm getting off. But they charged him. And he's like, wait, I want a refund. You don't get refunds. He's like, fine. They're like, you may as well use it. He said, fine. I'm going to go in and change everything that I said. First, he said, you know, five, four or so. Okay. 5'10 or taller. And then he was saying under 40, 40 or over. All of these things. And I was the exception to everything that he was already saying. And then he sent me a note. We went back and forth. And it turned out, and I kid you not, Anna, he was married before. When he was married, we had been living like a five-minute walk apart. We both went to the same university, did not know each other. Howard? It was a Howard University, yep. And the woman that I had been catering with, she was the person who catered his wife's family's Thanksgiving dinners. I never worked those dinners because I had other Thanksgiving clients. 
when they met, they were like, you look familiar. And that's when all of the pieces fell into place. Like we had been living like sliding doors, parallel lives. You know, that feeling of total euphoria when you first fall in love? Mm -hmm. That must have been so amplified for you, too. It was. Like, this was so meant to be. Our paths <laughs> finally crossed. Yes. You know, spiritually, I had been doing, you know how you do all these workshops? Because I'm, I'm that flower child. You do these workshops, like trying to get to know yourself, having a list and, you know, changing the size of the bed so you can amplify the love on one side and the other side. Okay, all that stuff. Weird. But yes, that was me. <laughs> but when we came together, I was like, okay, this is it because I've done the work. Thank you, Spirit. That was all I could say. Thank you. And I have to say, it wasn't like everything was easy. It wasn't like, oh, we don't have challenges and arguments because Matthew, when we started our relationship, was very jealous. I'm like, what do you have to be jealous about? I'm just grateful that you stepped into my life like this easily. I'm like, dude. But I was also the type of person who wanted to keep every single ex around me. I'm like, I liked you once. Why would I like you now? That's who I am. But he was not like that. In terms of jealousy, did career stuff ever play into that? Not so much, but, you know, when I got the chew, we talked about would I even apply or go after this job because it's shot in New York and we lived in D.C. So here we are. He's like, OK, I want you to do it. But I was living in New York from Sunday to Thursday. And so I was working with Mario and Michael, all of these M's. And Matthew is my husband. So it's Matthew, Michael, Mario. I mean, come on. I mean, it's so you were calling Matthew like Mario. <laughs> right. So one time Matthew comes over and Michael Simon was smoking. He had this really cool cigarette pack. And I said, oh, can I have that? I just think it's so cool. I just love graphics. So I had it. Matthew came up to New York and I have this packet of cigarettes on my dresser. And then I turned to say Michael and it didn't go over that well. Ha! <laughs> the evidence was there, Carla. <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't understand. So that was kind of crazy. But I mean, he knows Michael Simon very well, but it was just funny. I'm not a jealous person, so it doesn't dawn on me to be jealous, but I do have to play to his sensibilities. And that's how I have to love him to understand the optics. 
could have been. And then I started my tactic because you're competing against each other so much. Yep. I started to be proactive a little bit where I would compliment people I was jealous of. <laughs> and that became a way for me to love them. Mm. It felt like a simple solution. And it's totally effective, actually. Like, it's impossible to give, you know, somebody a compliment for me without really meaning it and loving them for those things. Yes. Okay, Carla, what talent or ability would you most like to have if you could wake up tomorrow and have a skill that maybe you don't have time to learn right now? Oh, I would love just to read something one time and comprehend it immediately. And not just comprehend like what the words are, but where you can see three, five moves down the road and you can just like, like all of the pieces are coming into place. I would just love to have better critical thinking and instant comprehension when I read something. Are you thinking about something specific? I mean, newspapers, magazines, you know, sometimes it takes time to digest for me. I have to live through the information before it connects. I love the backstory of things, but that takes time. And I want to have that faster. I do get frustrated when the information isn't direct, mm -hmm. especially in our business. Yes. Although sometimes when it is direct, it can be painful. Yeah, I don't mind that. I don't mind that pain. If somebody's <laughs> like, yeah, you kind of fucked that up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but wouldn't you prefer that? I mean, seriously, Anna, as an actor, when you go, and I'm equating this when for a short period of time I modeled, I don't really want to go out, and maybe this could wear on a person, but I want you to tell me exactly what you think, then I can get better. It's not even personal. I'm not what you're looking for. But when somebody's like, you're great, I'm going to call you back. That was great. And you're like, no, you're not. No, it wasn't. Or it was great, but it's not what you need. Don't you want somebody to be honest? Well, I appreciate specific direction always. Some actors don't, but I do. Mm -hmm. Same thing with like if I have to do a photo shoot, which like the acknowledgement of vanity with photo shoots is tricky for me. I think it is for a lot of actors. Yeah. I don't think I'm unusual in that. You're trained to pretend the camera isn't there in any way. So to look directly into it and have like a big natural smile on your face or whatever with like 40 people <laughs> behind the photographer analyzing, that's a stressful environment for me. But I do appreciate when a photographer is like, okay, turn slightly that way. Uh -huh. You know what my secret is to that? Yeah. Whenever I'm doing a photo shoot or a book signing and there are all these people coming up to me, I tell the person, and I'm thinking myself, when I look at the camera, I am thinking of somebody I want to see. I'm generally looking at my grandmother. I'm thinking of her being there with my favorite cake. So I probably turn into some acting exercise, but it is genuine and it is authentic and it helps me get out of my head about it. I marvel at how Oprah looks at the camera and engages with it so directly. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. That's just a compliment to Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What intimidates you? It's funny. In my head, I'm hearing, let me count the ways. I was the quirky, weird kid in school. Did you have a large group of friends? I did. My friends were the misfit kids, you know. And you grew up in Nashville. <laughs> I grew up in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And I went to a really small Catholic school. And then I ended up going to public school where in my grade school, there were only 30 kids, right? So when I went to high school and I ended up going to public school, there were a lot more kids, a lot more different groups. And so I tended to befriend the weird kids, like the square pegs. Those are my friends. 
But I also had friends who were athletes. I had a lot of different friends, but I related to the misfit kids. But when I am in a situation, and I remember even in college when I'm around the quote unquote beautiful people, the people who think that they're beautiful people, I get a little awkward. I all of a sudden become that person who was in grade school. No matter what, I become that person again. And I'm like, I am 50 plus years old. Why am I going back to 13? It's a really weird feeling. And I have to talk myself through that. Carla, I carry those feelings too. My identity was height. I was very short. I was a very late bloomer. I was the youngest in my class. Those things are still in me very much. And I think it gave me a little touch of Napoleon complex, maybe. Just a little. I suppressed it a lot. Mm. But were you always a taller person? Oh, I was. I was born in 1964. So, you know, that first decade, especially in grade school, where they line you up by height and you're back there with the boys. No, actually, the boys are in front because they're still short and you're in the back. But my mother was always pushing her thumb in my back and said, stand up straight, stand up straight. You cannot slouch. She had me in dance. And so when I went to college, people thought I was stuck up because I was walking with my head up, (laughs) shoulders back. Good for you, though. That's amazing that your mom wanted you to know your presence. That is incredible. Yeah. So I love being tall. I remember even if I was awkward, I mean, I was gangly. I was on the basketball team. You know, of course, you're going to put the tall girl on the basketball team, but I wasn't that good. My mother didn't even invest in real tennis shoes. So I had buddies on and it was half court I was dribbling down. You know, I get into the game when we're 50 points ahead and I'm dribbling down and stop at the half court and then throw the ball over. And then I slide over. It's a turnover and they tease me. And then I would always hyperventilate when we were practicing. I mean, physically, I was <laughs> a mess. But then I did theater. I did theater from 12 to 17. And why did you stop? Because I heard an interview where you talked a little bit about wanting to pursue acting. And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but something about a love for it. I love it. I absolutely love acting. I see you as such a natural actor. I can't even tell you how much I love the idea of it. And when the chew ended, I said, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. But I didn't get into Boston University. That was the only conservatory that I wanted to go to. I saw it as a huge rejection and I didn't do it. And then when I went to Howard, even though they had a really great fine arts program, I was like, okay, I'm going to major in accounting. I was just rejected so much that I said, I'm not going to do it. That's not dissimilar to me. I went to University of Washington and they have a really strong theater program. I had done a bunch of theater in Seattle growing up, but the drama program I just did not excel at all. And I couldn't quite figure out why. And it felt like the only answer was that I'm not good enough. Mm. So I ended up majoring in English. I still did some acting jobs for some extra money, like voiceover work or little regional commercials or shit like that. Did a really bad horror movie that actually was the (laughs) impetus of moving to Los Angeles. But I was very pragmatic. I knew that it felt like such a distant, distant possibility that I'd be able to make a living. Uh The actors that I knew that were adults were Seattle theater actors making, you know, $20,000 a year. And I knew that I wanted to have some degree of financial security. Can I live on that? I know. Well, this was (laughs) in the 90s. (laughs) So I did absorb that collegiate rejection 
just like you did. Right? You know, it's amazing where we put ourselves. And then years later, a friend who went to BU and went to the National Children's Theater with me, she said, that's not what happened. You weren't rejected by BU. The dean of the school felt like people should, especially actors, major in something else and then come back in the graduate work. So I got accepted into Boston University, but they were asking me to defer my admissions into the drama department. And I didn't remember that. So it's funny how you're living with something. And this was only like a few years ago that it changes the way that you were thinking about something. But I still forget the reality of what she told me. What a great friend. My dad told me early on I was smarting over some rejection, which I normally never vocalized. I just kept them out of the loop because I didn't want any of their pressure. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that audition go? I didn't want any of that. But one time my dad told me after a rejection... He said, honey, you're just like a beautiful, ornate chair. And they already have their sofa set and their coffee table and their rug. And the chair just doesn't work. And it's unfortunate that they already had the set. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It was really nice. And I think about that like, well, yep, maybe I just am not Cinderella's shoe for this one. But I mean, anybody who's listening, when you go for a job, when you go for anything where there is a potential rejection... That is the thing. I mean, the rest of the furniture is there. Unless you're the first piece of furniture. I know. Right? All the other furniture, the design is there. You're coming in, like, you know, with your polka dots and stripes. And they're like, uh, we have Paisley. (laughs) So, Carla, you are that chair. (laughs) Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Do you have a favorite movie that you could watch over and over? Okay, the first thing that came to my head was Babette's Feast. I have seen this movie years ago. My parents are indie film buffs, and they also love food movies. Yes, yes, yes. But wait, Carla, will you describe it a little bit in your words for our listeners? Yes. So this movie is about a woman. It's World War One, war-torn Europe. I want to say it's in Belgium or Denmark. Right. Where she was this famous chef, and she ended up having to work with a family just as a cook scrubbery, you know, right? And nobody realized who she was and there wasn't any money. So she just made, you know, gruel, just regular stuff. 
And then she won the lottery and she used all of that money to bring in all of this amazing food that she wasn't able to work with. Yeah, I have the imagery. It's been years, but one of those bird within a bird things. Yes, <laughs> yes. She stuffed the bird. It was like a turducken, but whatever they would call it. And then she had all of these beautiful soups and she ended up spending the entire lottery winnings on this dinner, course after course. And then when the people that she was cooking for, when they were eating this food and they were very wealthy, they were like, oh my gosh, this is like the food of whatever, I can't remember her name, this famous chef. And they realized, because she had these specialty dishes and they realized all this time who had been cooking for them. Oh. Kai, like this isn't on my list, but I would love to ask you three underappreciated, poorly used vegetables that resonate with you. Okay, okay. Celery. I think celery is underappreciated. Celery is amazing. Grilled. Oh my gosh. Celery. Root. Yes. Grilled celery, though, I'm imagining like charred strings, though. You get rid of the strings. You just take like a paring knife at the tip and you just take off a little bit and then pull those strings down. Get rid of the strings. And then charred celery adds so much. It's also, you can fill it, pimento cheese, cream cheese, you know, like ants on a log with little raisins. You can also dice them up, put them into things. But how do you do it on a stovetop? Do you need a gas grill? No, you could do like a grill pan. You could even just wipe oil on them and put them in a cast iron skillet. You don't even need a grill pan. But just that char on the celery, I, it is so delicious. And my mouth is even watering thinking about it because celery has so much water that from the char and when you're eating this, then it creates more water in your mouth and then that slight crunch and then it just awakens your taste buds for the next bite of whatever it's going to be. Ah, oh, I just love celery. Celery. Carla, I'm trying this. I can't wait. <laughs> I just love it. That was such a great answer, too. It's cheap. Everybody can do it. It's one of those things. Everybody can afford celery. I think carrots are underutilized. I think carrots and spice go so well together. Raw, cooked, grilled, roasted. How should we pick out carrots in the grocery store? My mom told me stubby with greens on. Stubby with greens is great, but carrots are all different. So there are some that are long and slender with greens. If they do have the green tops, you want to make sure that the greens have a little bit of life in them. And sometimes I do stuff like this, you know, right when they have the thunderstorm and if you're carrot greens, that'll wake them up. So make sure you get a little water in there and go to another aisle and come back, have your carrots awaken if they haven't, don't get that bunch. <laughs> but also you want carrots that aren't split. You don't want the pointy end to be soft. You want to make sure that your carrots are crisp. That's the main thing. You just don't want wilty vegetables. The other thing, I think right now, it's the year of the vegetable, and I've been saying it for eons. I know cauliflower had its day. It has no business in a crust of a pizza, but whatever. <laughs> no business. I'm with you, Kyla. Right? I'm like, this is not good. Yeah. Okay, radishes, but radishes braised. Have you ever braised radishes or cucumbers? Cucumbers braised. What? Oh my gosh. So good. Cucumbers. So simple and so good. So I've got like my pan, olive oil. I've got my cucumber yeah. and radishes. Would you combine the two? Yeah. So you'll start with your radishes because they need a little more cooking. So take a bowl and toss your quartered radishes in olive oil just enough to get them coated. And then you have this cast iron skillet, no oil or anything. There's salt on your radishes. When your pan is screaming hot, you're going to put those radishes in. Then you're going to 
and then they're searing because you're going to leave them alone on the flat side and they're going to start to get brown and then you're going to shake your pan a little bit and then here they are they're going to be so beautiful and they have a little bit of char and then you're going to add your cucumbers that are the Persian cucumbers quarter them lengthwise and then cut them almost about the same size of the radishes and then they're going to get a little bit of love a little bit of salt and then right at the end you're going to put in a little bit of veggie stock and then you're going to finish it with butter and then you're going to put in maybe some mint or parsley and you toss them and then that butter is just going to glaze them all but then you have the char and again just like the celery they are going to just have all of this beautiful char but this texture of like an Asian pear so when you eat it it is so delicious and it totally changes it takes the spice out of the radish totally change the profile of the radish I'm going to tell you you'd love it I don't think I've ever cooked either of those items most people haven't and it's perfect with fish just a simple piece of fish what that sounds amazing All right. This is a random question about okra. Uh Can we not get okra because it doesn't travel well? Well, you can get okra. It's seasonal. A lot of times people forget that, well, you're in California. Do they not grow okra out there? I don't see it very frequently, but I also don't know if there's a demand for it. The few times I've had okra, it's like a mushy niceness. Yeah, there's nothing nice about mushy. (laughs) (laughs) Okra is seasonal. You're sort of talking late summer, like July, August. If you have your druthers at a farmer's market, look for the small ones. And actually, the small ones can be eaten raw for an okra salad. I don't like slimy okra, so I opt for either grilled the whole okra or cut it lengthwise, sear it, or slice it really thin, toss it in some cornmeal and fry them, which would be really yummy. I love it. I have three or four recipes in my cookbook, Carla Hall Soul Food of Okra. I don't like okra, but I'm like, how can I do a soul food cookbook? And it's every day in celebration without celebrating okra. I said, this is Carla. Put your big girl pants on. This ain't about you, girl. It ain't right, about you. Right. It's about the culture. Everyone's going <laughs> to ask you about okra, including me. But I like roasted okra. One of my favorite recipes in the book is when I do this brothy tomato soup. Because you like stew, tomato, and okra. Uh-uh. Slimy. Uh-uh. But I do this soup. It's really brothy. I roast the okra until it's charred. And then I put the soup in a bowl. And right before I eat it, I put pieces of charred okra in the soup. The charred okra permeates the soup. And it is delicious. And it still has texture and integrity. Because the texture is like a tough one to work with. Uh It does have a particular nuttiness to it that can be kind of lovely. Yes. Okay. What is a dream that you've let go of? I actually don't love that one because I don't want you to have let go of acting. Okay, right. I'm pulling that one back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually did an interview and I got a role. You did? Yep. That makes me so happy. I don't think I would say this about too many people, but you very much have a performer's heart, a performer's energy to you, which I love. Thank you. That means so much to me, Anna. I can't even tell you. It really does. I knew that coming into this, you have a kindred spiritness about you. I just love you so much. Thank you. Oh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Top Chef. Yes. Did you, in that intense environment where I'm sure you had a lot of friends, but when people are, I don't know, whatever happens in that chaos Mm -hmm. and you feel like, fuck, I like that person, but shit, now I hate them. (laughs) This is what I imagine the environment being like. Is it like that? And are you living together? Like, how did you manage the competition side with wanting to have personal relationships? 
Interestingly enough, the living together was harder than cooking together. I think as a professional, you learn how to navigate a kitchen with other people. That makes sense. You have tags on your stove. You're calling things out. There's some people who hog all of the equipment, but I think that's the professional side, which you have professional courtesy because it's just in us. That's what we do. Living with people, living with guys who use too much toilet paper, won't flush the toilet, that right there, that will take you down. <gasps> you who need the stove and you just plugged up my toilet, <laughs> get out, right? That's the thing that spills over into the kitchen. <laughs> oh my God. I just thought that was so hard living in an apartment. And I was older too. So I was 44 when I did Top Chef. And a lot of those, I think of them as kids. They were in their 20s. And Arian Duarte was about my age. She was about 40, I think. That was probably the hardest thing. I'm like, ugh, where you're very conscientious in cleaning a bowl and stuff. However, being on Top Chef, the stress and pressure of performing and feeling like people will judge you and your career based on this dish was a lot. It really was a lot. And because I was a caterer, I felt a sense of less than and not really respected. I remember talking about being in Top Chef All-Stars and somebody looked at me and they're like, how is it that you're winning? You're like, what? Wait, is this a real question? And then all of your self-doubt comes knocking at the door. And then you're like, no, I freaking won. I won a challenge because my food was the best. And it was almost like I was playing this game, like I was the spook who sat by the door. It was crazy. I'm looking at your face like, I mean, that came out of somebody's mouth. As though the combination of having a winning personality and the best food should not exist or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Has a stranger ever changed your life? I obviously don't know who this person is. I was sitting next to this guy on a flight and he was so nice. And we started talking and he told me that he was an atheist. And I don't know why in the moment I was like, oh, but this man embodied who I think Jesus is. Like his being, the presence, the complete lack of judgment of other people he was so warm that this love exuded from him. And I remember thinking, I mean, it, it was so crazy because these aren't thoughts that I have. I am a spiritual person. I'm not a religious person. But I remember thinking that if I found out that this stranger was Jesus just in this body, I would believe it. And this man said that he was an atheist. And I remember leaving there thinking anybody, any person could be Jesus, could be a prophet, could be a saint walking around, and we should treat people the way that we want to be treated. And it came from sitting next to this man who was a self-proclaimed atheist. I love a great airplane conversation. Right. But the bad ones are tough. Ooh, child, the bad ones. Accidental <laughs> tourists. Can I move? Can I move? <laughs> I remember, oh, God, maybe 15 years ago, I was on a flight probably up to Seattle, and a man asked me what I did for a living, and I said, I'm an actor. And I still struggle with the actor-actress thing, but he said, oh, so you're a waitress. Oh, damn. He said it kind of jokingly, but the awesome thing was... It really rolled off my back in a way that, I mean, I clearly remember it, but it was nice to be like, no. Right. That was so beautiful, though. But it checked you. But really, do you think that that question was really for you more so than for him? Like the universe is giving you a chance to take a report card in that moment. And that was your report card. Like, where are you with this thing? 
Well, yeah, and I think that maybe he needed to believe that, too. Uh But I wish I had had your seat partner. (laughs) Okay, do you have a greatest regret? This is a weird one because I really try not to live with regret. I mean, in a perfect world, I think there are no mistakes in the universe, and I am exactly where I'm supposed to be, but I am also human. When I was in grade school, thinking back to school and how I think I took school for granted, And I think it came up for me recently because looking at all these kids who have been out of school for a year and I took school for granted just in the way that I learned. I'm like, I just have to study for the test versus learning the material. I regret not actually learning the material. I was thinking about this the other day. I want to go back and do school all over again. I mean, okay, I'm going to probably get through the fifth grade pretty good. And go through school and just with the interest that I have now. I know. It is unfortunate that it feels like education is wasted on the youth. (laughs) Yes. Isn't it true? It is. I was in college for five years and it wasn't until maybe year two and a half that I started to engage, that I started to become proactive in my own education. Yes. And I wish I had learned that earlier. Matthew and I were talking about this. Somehow I thought that if I had to work really hard at something, I wasn't good at it. But actually I had to work hard at it because I cared about it. I mean, and I was a good student. I made good grades without much effort. But like, what if I really tried? Carla, to whom would you most like to apologize? The person that comes to mind is a friend, Rosalind Johnson. And we were in Bologna together. We were modeling. Part of modeling was just getting an agency. Forget the job. You know, you have to go to audition, you know, with your book just to find an agency. Oh, God, it sounds awful. Awful. And then I had booked an agency and they were coming to pick me up and we were staying together in the same uh, pensione. And when they came, I was supposed to ask the person who came to get me if she could come along. And I was afraid to. I was afraid to ask them because if I asked them if she could come along, they would say no or they would say, well, no, you just stay. And so I looked at her and she's like waiting for me to ask. And I just turned around and left. This was two decades ago, and I feel so shitty for it. And I would go back and say to Rosalind, I am so sorry. I'm just so sorry. That and also wrecking somebody's car. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really poignant example, though, of we all have those moments when our own insecurities or weakness prevents us from doing what our gut tells us. That's youth, though, too. Mm-hmm. Not standing up for a kid who's being picked on or being a bystander. Yes. When we know in our hearts that we should be proactive. All right. I love that answer. Who would you invite to your dream dinner party? Carol Burnett. I freaking love Carol Burnett. I love her, too. Oh, my God. I love her. I would invite Viola Davis. Eckhart Tolle, because you need a spiritual person, but he's also funny. And probably some quirky person. I need to get back into reading. I haven't been reading at all. I've been knitting and puzzling, Carla. Oh, my God. Puzzling. Like jigsaw puzzles? Yes. Oh, oh, my God. Okay. First of all, Anna. Yes. I had a puzzle party with some friends, okay, over Zoom. I was like, let's do a puzzle. They're like, a puzzle? I'm like, yeah. I said, let's just get a 300-piece puzzle. Yeah, you can manage that collectively. I mean, (laughs) we can manage that, right? So we each had the same puzzle. No, it's in Chicago, Atlanta, and D.C., and we're doing this puzzle. 
I finished the puzzle in 24 minutes. They're still struggling after two hours. 24 minutes? Yeah. Carla, that's good. I freaking love puzzles. I'm like, what is wrong with you all? I mean, they didn't do puzzles. I love puzzles. I think puzzles say a lot about the way somebody thinks, the way that they formulate information in their heads. I just love puzzles. I love puzzles. I didn't know I was a puzzler till quarantine. There's something meditative about it. Yes. I like to think that maybe there's some kind of brain activity growth, but I don't know. There is. Good. How do you process them? What's your puzzle style? All right. Open the bag. Yeah. I'll turn everything over. Mm-hmm. Separate the edges and corners. Do you put them in a sifter to get all the dust out? No, I should. I know. Don't you hate the dust? Yeah, I hate the dust. I do. But I'm also kind of lazy, Carla, and I'm pretty floppy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I would have been one of those roommates on Top Chef. Girl. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you turn the pieces over. Yeah, and the edges. And then I don't really look at the box. I will check it out sometimes, but I like to go off of sort of intense, like, color variations. Yes. Whatever I'm kind of drawn to and kind of build from there. I pretty much do what you do. I mean, I put everything into categories exactly the way you did. Then I put everything into categories. And then once I exhaust that color, then I'll go to another color and then I'll start putting things together. But also, I love to pick up a piece, really study the shape and see where it goes. I play this game. Can I pick up a piece and put it right down in the space? Yes. That's like my jam. Like, I love doing a great artist. Uh I like paintings with puzzles as opposed to photographs. I like following the swirls of paint, especially with like a Van Gogh or something. Although those are hard. Those are hard. They're hard. They take a minute. Carla, I want to ask you, on what occasion do you lie? This is so good. I think I lie when I feel like I should know something. And I say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting better. I tell myself I'm never going to say I know something when I don't know it because I am missing an opportunity to actually get to know it. I'm not a liar. I'm pretty much an open book, but that would be the thing. Even if it's to myself, Mm -hmm. I hate that. And now that I'm admitting it, I have to do better. What is a trait you dislike in others? I'm actually a little wary and afraid of people who aren't aware of themselves. Like if they don't have self-awareness, that scares me because they don't know that they're not doing the right thing. Yeah, (laughs) you're right. It is trickier to figure out people's motivations when they're eager to Mm self-describe. I think maybe we're talking about a similar type of person. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of self-describers in Los Angeles because everyone's trying to sell themselves. Yes, yes. Okay. What is a trait you dislike in yourself? I would like to think that this is a really hard question because nothing's popping. (laughs) I love you. I can't think of anything. I love myself. I think sometimes I can be loud, like physically loud when I'm not supposed to be, you know, because I can get in my own moment and what's funny to me and it comes out very loud. But I don't ever want you to suppress that. It's a blessing and a curse because I feel that one of the great things that I love about myself is I can actually go in and just be all in. I'm like, y'all, this is going to be me. But sometimes the me that's presented may Maybe it can be a bit much. I think that's a problem on the other side. Okay, good. Thank you. You know, I do. (laughs) I fully do. What do you think is the meaning of life? I think the meaning of life is, and you're talking to someone who believes in reincarnation. I think it is about following your current path. 
in your lane doing the thing that you're meant to do because by not doing what you're meant to do, you take away from other people's path as well. You literally swerve out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that if we all in life did whatever path our heart is taking us, everybody would benefit. And that doesn't really describe what life is, but I think life is ebbs and flows, I guess. Carla, I think that's beautiful. What is your greatest extravagance? Like as a purchase or? Well, I guess it can be however you want to frame it, but a purchase is always fun. (laughs) I'm not a purse person. Probably my biggest extravagance physically are probably my glasses. The glasses that you're wearing today are amazing. Thank you. I have 72 pairs. Yeah. Yeah. I love it that you also know that there's 72. (laughs) Because people are always asking me and I have to go and I have to count them. And then I'll buy a batch, like four, and then I'll put some away. And people will ask me, are those prescriptions? I'm like, yeah. I can't even hear without my glasses. So, yes. (laughs) Kyla, in terms of advice, all of us really have experienced one-way love. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you have any thoughts? about loving oneself or however you would like to phrase it? I think it's really about getting to know yourself. Even if it's sitting and saying to yourself, why do I like this dish? Peanut butter and jelly, why do I like it? As you understand and ask yourself those questions, like why you like what you like, and start with easy stuff, then the bigger things will be easier to handle. Because sometimes we're doing something because somebody else wants us to do it and you have no idea why you're doing it. So get to know yourself, but start with the easy questions. I think that's beautiful because I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to relationships, if something is consistently giving you a heavy heart, Mm -hmm. a physical feeling that's unpleasant, that should be examined and how to navigate through those waters, especially when you like somebody more than they like you. Right. Kyla, in one word, how would you like to be remembered? Loving. I think that's beautiful. Carla, I can't thank you enough for today. Thank you. Truly, I was looking forward to this. I've had all kinds of feelings about the podcast. It's been an amazing experience for me, and it continues to be. And I can't thank you enough for being a part of it. And I love you, Carla. I'm going to act with you one day. Girl, say it in so and so. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey everyone, April Beyer is back, now officially as my much-needed co-host. As you know from previous episodes, April brings great advice, insight, and years of experience. I am so thrilled to have her. 
Sarah, can you hear us? How are you, Anna? I'm great. How are you? Nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. I want to introduce you to April Byer. Hi, April. Hi. Sarah, will you tell us what's going on? Well, I think it's, you know, over 40 dating issues. A lot of what's happening to me is I'm finding I'm meeting men and they already have a primary relationship established. So they already have a partner. So there's maybe some underlying commitment issues where they have women that they were partnered with for many, many years that they've never married, or they still have them in their orbit. And they want to bring in other women into the mix, but they really already have a partner and they're really not the commitment type. So that's what I keep meeting. So there's a pattern. (laughs) Well, I feel like what you're saying is that there's an ex-wife, an ex-girlfriend. They're not ready to give up on that, like sort of men in their 40s and 50s already having a relationship with somebody else that's intimate. So there isn't room for a new person. I think what might be happening is the older we get, the more history we have. So you're meeting people who have a prior experience to relationship, to marriage. And so what I'd like to define is when you say that they already have someone in their life, Anna just said an ex-girlfriend, an ex-wife, but are you meeting anybody that is in a current relationship so that they're actually trying to have more than one relationship at a time? Or are these people in their past? So most recently I met a guy where I was wrong as I was too hopeful, but he actually was still involved with his ex-partner because she owned a business that he still worked for and she was going to sponsor him for his visa. So he was still seeing her every day. They were working together. You know, he would go do projects for her on the weekend rather than see me. So it's happened very recently. And I've also met a man present himself as single. And then two months in, he was in fact married. So I'm meeting men that are portraying that they're more single than they are. Anna's face looks very like... (laughs) Well, the pessimistic side of me wonders, are we in this age where monogamy and commitment is being redefined a little bit? My personality suits monogamy. But April, you have your finger on the pulse of all of this. Sarah, you're missing something. If you're dating somebody and two months in, you find out that this guy is married. And when I say married, I don't mean not yet divorced, living separately. I'm talking about if he was actually married, living under the same roof as his wife. That tells me that we need to empower you with some kind of qualification skills so that you are vetting these men sooner because you keep coming up against this lack of availability with men. Now I know to go to their house, like the first month in, try to see how they live. But I have this thing on my dating profile, and it says, stay away from me if you have a wife, a girlfriend, a girl who thinks she's your girlfriend, an ex-girlfriend who basically is still your girlfriend, or a woman you're still in love with or have feelings for. (laughs) So I put this on my dating profile as like a fence. Mm. So wait, Sarah, do you mostly date through apps I prefer to meet men out and I actually can meet men out. But I think with COVID, it's sort of become a necessary evil that we've had to be on these apps because things were closed down and not as much was going on. So, And Sarah, will you tell us a little bit about your relationship history as well? So I've dated a lot of men. I mean, I can meet men. I've had several long-term relationships and I've engaged a few times, but I've never been married. With those engagements, did you end them? 
Um, I did. April, what do you think about the dating app world in regards to Sarah? Well, you know, there's solid people on dating apps and there are people that don't have the right intention, right? We get bored, we're lonely, our partners aren't satisfying us. And so there's this default switch of, hey, let me get on a dating app and make my life better. And then everybody is roadkill around them. So you have to kind of watch for that. But Sarah, I would like to see you be in a position where you are in advance looking at things as opposed to having to break up or having to end something or having to find out that somebody is married. Because I think that there's telltale signs sooner. And the thing about your stay away if and that long list you gave, the problem with building fences is the good guys tend to think that you don't choose well, so they stay away anyway. And the bad guys, the ones without the proper intention, they want to climb that fence. It's almost like you're giving them something to push against. It doesn't change anything. For example, people that break into a property, right? It says private property and they do it anyway. So the sign doesn't matter (laughs) because the people who are conscious don't do it. So you might as well omit that because I don't think it's keeping you safe. It's better to go into your positive of, I am looking for somebody who is cleared from their previous relationships and ready to commit to one person. So what can I do, April? Because it takes a couple months of really spending time with somebody to uncover if they have these primary relationships. So what can I say from the beginning to sort of not have to go through that? Great question. It is not what you say. It's how much you observe. You've got to really tune in right now and you've got to get super intuitive. And when you're talking with them and you're observing and you're asking the deeper dive questions, you literally sit back and you watch and you listen to these guys because there's patterns and behaviors that come up quickly. For example, in my world, I work with bachelors. I usually have a 45 minute to an hour phone call to see if that's a good client for us. And then I go and I meet. And that meeting might be one to two hours. So it's the equivalent of a date. And then I'm literally obligated to that person for six months or a year. And very rarely am I surprised at the person's behavior. I never meet one guy and then find out he's somebody else later on. And the reason for that is not because I've lucked out just meeting good guys. It's because I'm paying attention to what they're saying, how they're behaving, how consistent their behavior is in the beginning, what they decide to share with me. And I am asking those tougher questions without it looking like I'm interrogating. So there is a way for you to do this quickly. I'm not going to say you're going to find out everything you need to know, but you can literally figure out so much in one date, in two dates, in three, so that you aren't investing two, three months. So what questions should I ask? You know, how can I get to the root of that and suss that out of them? First of all, you can't leapfrog over dating. If you really want to meet the love of your life, you do have to invest. You don't have to invest six to 12 months, but if it takes you a couple of months to really see somebody's true character, that's kind of part of the price of admission. So you are looking at behavior and you're watching to see how consistent he is. A guy who is married and has a girlfriend is only calling or seeing you once a week. Agree. They're actually quite attentive. You know, the one that was married was seeing me all the time, more so than some of the other men I've ever dated. So he was married and living with his wife? Yes. So what do you think she was thinking about where he was if he was gone all the time? I think he's done it for so long that she would think he was working. What about overnight? Uh, He wasn't staying overnight. 
So that's the giveaway. I'm not great at being an immediate judge of character, but I do tend to pick up on when things don't seem to add up. Like there's a leap in logic or there's a missing part of the story that somebody just sort of skips over and you don't feel like you can kind of go back and clarify that minor detail or whatever. And I think about that like, well, why the fuck didn't that add up? Did you see those kinds of clues when you were with this person? I do think we do have rose-colored glasses that I've learned to take off, you know? So as I said, the last one, I was a little bit hopeful to where he was still partnered up with his ex because he still worked for her, right? So to me, it's more of accumulation. You see one little thing and you do like them and you see potential, so you're hopeful. So I would say yes over time, I would start to see little things, but it's when the little things add up and it's just too many steps, then enough is enough. Yeah, good relationships happen when there's hope and reality at the exact same time. You don't change them out for the other. You know, this guy that was still working with his ex-wife, that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't available to recommit to somebody else. There's a lot of couples that do business together, and then that professional relationship might continue on. What you need to be looking at is how are you being treated? What is it that they say they're looking for? You can tell when a guy has physical and emotional space in his life. It isn't just how much he's seeing you. And my guess is that you've used the word hopeful a few times, right? We can be excited about somebody and invest in them and keep our heads screwed on straight at the same time. Ask the questions. When was your last relationship? What was that like? And when you're asking questions out of interest and curiosity and not because you're trying to vet or qualify, you get closer to the truth. So you want to make your questions look natural, easy. You can't go in and say, I've been hurt and I want to make sure you don't. So let's discuss this first. You might get somebody lying to you, and that's what I'm afraid of. You'll get closer to the truth if you literally just go in as a friend in the beginning with, you know, what was your last relationship like and what was she like? You want to hear, was she anything like you? You want to hear certain kind of attributes and traits that are closer to who you are. Then you want to hear, like, how long ago was that and what do you miss about it? What do you miss about your life with your wife or your last girlfriend? In that question, you're going to hear how much distance is there. He might say, well, I actually still see her. We're next door neighbors or I still work with her. A lot of women can date a guy that has a working relationship with his ex, as long as it's just a professional one. But for whatever reason, for you, it's not right. It's not good for you personally. So just look for those sooner. But I think you have more going on than these men have exes. My guess is that like a lot of women will call me and say, I'm only meeting married men right? And you're saying, I'm only meeting men that don't have space and that are attached to either the past, they haven't let her go, or they're still in it. They don't have time for you. They're not putting you first. They have false behavior. So we're also just looking at character too, and you're missing all of that, right? So it isn't about them because wherever you go, there you are. It's about figuring out what can you do first in your online dating bio, you've got to speak positively to what you want and not talking about what you don't want. I mean, I can take ownership and I've gotten better at vetting over time, but I feel like there is this mentality with these men. They normalize the behavior and it's okay to them. Like they want to have multiple women. Like they feel that it's not a bad thing, you know? I'm not trying to be hard on you. I'm really fighting for you. And I'm telling you that is your experience. Life is still life and you're running up against it. And it's not just vetting. It's also 
what are you asking for? I mean, long before you meet somebody, what are the things you want? How do you want to be treated? Instead of just thinking about, I want to be married and I want a relationship, how much affection do you need? How much time do you need? How much communication are you looking for? When you raise the bar of what you expect, you live and breathe that and you actually don't have to talk about it. I never even asked my husband when we met, are you still seeing somebody? What's going on? I didn't even need to because I was already behaving in a certain way that gave me the treatment back that I wanted and he was showing up consistently. So I felt really safe, not because I trusted him, but because I trusted me. I'm so happy for you that you found that. So (laughs) it makes me feel better, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, again, it's just your own timing, right? And when it happens for you. But my guess is that you aren't holding the bar high enough. You're being too hopeful, too accommodating. You'll get a certain place and then you get disappointed and then they regroup and then you get hopeful again. No, that was the steps of behavior. Like you see one little sign and then it starts to pile up, you know, just with with bad behavior. You should nip it about the first time, but you give people the benefit of the doubt. So when you keep seeing little things add up and it's a pattern, that's character. And that's also, you've used the word hopeful a couple of times, but it's more of you putting yourself last. So it's not like you said the first time somebody screws up, we throw them to the curb. It's, ooh, wait a minute, something there doesn't feel good. I've got to go home and I've got to unpack what that is and trust myself. Anna and I have talked about this before. Like we as women, we have this crazy intuition that sometimes we discount, right? And we let it go because we intellectualize our way into something or out of something. So when you feel those things, it's not that you have to go fire him immediately. You just have to really go home and sit on it for a second. Something is telling me there's danger there, that that person isn't right for me. It's not like, oops, I'm sorry. I was 30 minutes late. I apologize. It's something else where you know early on with each of these guys, I'm sure you knew, you just kept giving them chances. April, I really like the idea of also exploring how we want to be loved. In my 30s, I would have self-described as like somebody who liked their independence and who didn't need a partner to be around all the time, you know, someone who prioritizes work maybe. And it's only since being in my relationship with Michael that I realized what I wanted and needed And it turns out that I really value intimacy. I love how close we are. I love spending as much time together as we can. And we became close quickly, which I had experienced before. But I could tell, like April says, Michael showed up completely and consistently. And it did take some time and effort to allow myself to be vulnerable. But I also didn't see any reason to hold back. (laughs) Yes. And this is the interesting thing about men is they show up quickly. And so it's okay to hold the bar high and still be present and still be loving. And, you know, I don't think women who hold back as a way of protecting themselves win this game. I think they're the women that actually hurt themselves and attract all the wrong men. And so there's this fine line and this dance of, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to feel, I'm going to be committed to you and to be in this relationship, but I'm also going to be watchful of behavior, right? It's like the teacher that gives you an A, on day one, as opposed to an F. You get an A day one, and then we'll go from there. So I want to know what it is that you want. Like, do you think you expect enough from people early on? Let's say the first two, three, four weeks of dating them. 
I've come out in the beginning and with the last one, and we both discussed that we're looking for partners. So I've made it very clear that I'm not just casually dating. I'm not making demands of a man's time the first month in. I think I'm watching more than making demands. Okay. So there's a difference between demand and expectation and desire. So demands are, you need to see me five days a week. You need to be here at six o'clock. We need to have date night on this night. That's a demand. But I want to watch they show up for me in the beginning, right? What's genuine? What's authentic? How are they showing up? How are they investing? I want the man to lead. I don't want to force anything. So yeah, what I'm talking about has nothing to do with leading or forcing. Like when I set up couples, right? When they first meet, when it works well. Both parties will call me the next day and they're like, oh my gosh, April, I can't wait for Friday. You know, we have another date planned. And then Friday hits and they're already talking on Saturday again. Then it's like another date is happening Monday. When I met my husband, we had a date. And then four days later, we had another date on a Friday night. And he called me two days before the second date to say, I can't wait for Friday. Can you squeeze in lunch? (laughs) You know, on Wednesday, I just need to see you. That was present from the beginning. And I think a lot of people do this. We think, well, we're just starting out, right? We've just met. It's only two weeks. It's only four. It's only six. And so we make allowances for things because we don't expect commitment yet. And like you said, Sarah, you don't want to demand. But people who are interested in you, they show up and they want to keep showing up because it's like they wake up the next day and they miss you and they want to see you again. Most guys who are interested in a woman don't wait a week or two to see her again, unless it's a scheduling issue. So maybe you're not looking for things early enough. You're sitting back and you're in the passenger seat and you are observing, but you're waiting for better behavior when there's a better commitment. And I'm saying this kind of stuff for men who are relationship ready happens a lot sooner. So just feed the ones out then in the beginning, you're saying that are not seeing me twice a week in the first few weeks. No, it's like, it's not about weeding them out or, or, or being angry. It's about, I'm only interested in people who are interested in me. I definitely feel that way now. I mean, I have that mentality and the last guy that I dated, we were seeing each other all the time and we started dating in December and we spent Christmas together and we spent Valentine's and we had that sort of progression. So Sarah, on a scale of one to 10, how hurt were you by this relationship? Mm, I was very disappointed. Yeah. I do believe it's like a fundamental part of being human, that heartbreak makes us more empathetic and better people. But I'm really sorry. And of course, your defenses are high. This is the guy that was still connected to his ex, correct? Uh Where did he go wrong? Did he fight you on that and say, no, I actually am available for you. I'm just working with her. Did he not want you to end things? Well, his time when he was available, he would do stuff for her. Mm -hmm. So the way that I saw it, he was very much, you know, he's known her for a long time. That was his partner. I was not a priority. Yeah. So it could have been just that it was a little too soon out of that. He had an obligation to her. We're talking visa. We're talking finances. We're talking a lot of things that have nothing to do with whether or not he cared about you. And I think the reason why your heart is hurting right now is because you assume that you weren't a priority. You assume that he didn't care about you. And that's not the best way to look at this. And it may not even be true. You just met somebody who's entangled in something that is deeper than just love and care. It's, I might get booted out of this country and 
I don't have money without this person because she signs my check. So when you go through heartache, it's not like he left you. You've just assumed that you weren't priority because he wasn't spending time with you. But I'm getting the feeling that he couldn't. And it's only because his life wasn't before he met you. It wasn't even set up to be with somebody. It had nothing to do with whether you were amazing enough for him to create time and space for you. Does that make sense? Well, he was not my person if he wasn't available and he was already partnered. Agreed. And I don't think he can be anybody's person. If he's not in a position to be dating and his life is not in order, he's not anybody's person now. Agreed, which is why it should hurt less because it has nothing to do with you not being amazing enough for him to carve out time. April, that's so much easier said than done. (laughs) I know, but it helps to heal. It helps to kind of get your heart back on track again. Yeah. The qualifying stage, if you're doing it right, you're actually having fun And you can even fall for somebody and you can enjoy their time while doing this. But I think first and foremost, Sarah, it's looking at your profile and looking to see what you're asking for, like rereading it and then taking a rewrite on it and then speaking in the positive. You are someone who has space in your life. You love to spend time with the person that you're dating. You have a lot of time to share with somebody, right? It seems like time is just as important as committing and getting married and everything else, correct? Well, that's my love language is quality time. So if somebody doesn't have time, then that really affects me. Yeah. And see how it hurts you. I can hear it in your voice. It hurts you when somebody doesn't spend quality time. But the moment you know it's not personal, it's just that it's not that important to them in general. I'm quality time. My husband is not so much quality time. And so it's not like I've had to learn to live without. It's just I don't get hurt or triggered by it because I know that he gives in exponentially more ways than I do, but it's just different and unique. So first, you've got to take the sort of the sting out of it and feeling like you're doing something wrong not to develop this desire in them. Men will give you as much love, time, attention, and energy as they are able to give and as they want to give. But if I know that somebody's loyal to me, like if I'm married and I know that they're committed and they don't have time, I'm okay with that. But it's the gray area when you're just dating somebody and the time goes to another woman. I just helped out a coaching client with this very same thing, so you're not alone, where she met somebody who was still technically married, but he hadn't been divorced yet for financial issues and there was a house issue. It disallowed him from fully committing. And it was triggering for her, but it was also because when she first started dating him, she made too many allowances and overlooked the fact that this guy was so tied to his former wife. There was not a divorce paper anywhere in sight, but they had been separated for a decade. So it isn't even so much about how long you've been divorced. It's what does your life look like right now? April, that's so interesting. The mantra must have been, but they've been separated for a decade, but they've been separated for a decade. That's what you tell yourself. But you're right. It is all in action and sort of and what we need from that. And then how those mantras can sort of undermine or sort of convince us of the story that we want to hear. Yes. And, you know, sometimes people will tell you that they're really, really ready and they're not. Or they'll tell you that they're not, and they actually are. And that's why we have to stop listening to what people say and go closer to what are we observing? What does their life look like? 
Does that make sense, Sarah? So like, I think if you're dating somebody and it's been two, three, four weeks and you're not seeing each other more and more often and you don't get, you know, the late night calls and the message during the day, those are things that I think men who are interested will do because they want to be in contact with you. It isn't just that fabulous weekend or that beautiful Friday night. There's just a lot more connection and communication earlier. April, in Sarah's letter, she writes that she is not attracted to men in their 50s. Might that specificity maybe keep her from meeting someone who would be a good fit for her? Well, this is why dating apps have hurt people, right? It forces you to put in an order, like you're driving through a drive-thru. But if you're out in public and you meet somebody and you're at the farmer's market or you're at the grocery store or you're at the beach or you're at a coffee shop, you meet somebody and suddenly you're connecting and you're having a great time and you don't know how old that person is. If you don't want people to judge you for your age, you have to make sure you're not judging others for their age because we all defy our age in different ways. And I guess I would ask Sarah, what is it that you're not attracted to in somebody who is 50? I've dated a few men that were early 50s, but they were very youthful, like their health, their energy. Mm-hmm. They looked a bit younger. So I don't want to sound superficial, but it is an energy level and it's also an appearance. And also, too, when men are going for a certain age range, a lot of women think, oh, that means that my age is too old. And it could just be that they're looking for family. I've had so many clients say to me, I only want this age because I want a family. And then they ended up with somebody closer to their own age. And then the family dynamics shifted or they had a beautiful surprise and were able to have kids. So I see it every single day that when people give me too much parameters on what they're looking for, that it basically shuts out a lot of opportunities. I think instead of looking at, are they attached, not attached? Are they this age, not that age? I would really invite and encourage you to start looking at what you're looking for and Where do you see your own value? Like, what do you bring to a relationship? And if you know that, and then the person you're going out with isn't seeing that, recognizing that, and being grateful to have it, then you quickly move on. But you have to know how much time do you want? How much affection do you want? Like Anna was saying, she realized in her 40s that she requires a lot of intimacy. And I should add, maturity is kind of fucking rad. (laughs) 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 Yes, you know, I wanted older and I got younger. So (laughs) you just don't know where you're going to end up. Well, I'll definitely be a little more open-minded then with some of the 50 plus. So Take your age and add on 10, go down a couple of years. Being open-minded about the age. I wish I could almost see your profile because I would show you how to ask for what you want and also how to pay attention to things early on when you're asking them questions, right? It's what you reveal and share. You could be saying to somebody, you know, now that I'm in my 40s, I look at commitment and love as time. And, you know, I have met some people who couldn't give me that time and that ends up not being the right relationship for me. So now I'm looking for that person who has that same time requirement that I do. Do you see there's a difference between how I'm saying that and like don't apply if or are you still with your ex or do you still care about her? You know, people can care about their exes and still build beautiful relationships. I've been watching a lot of below deck reruns. (laughs) I love that show. Oh, my God. There's some good life lessons. Anyway, the chef the other day in his talking head, he has a crush on this deckhand girl. 
And he's saying, I'm at a time in my life. I want to share these amazing experiences with someone. But the way he was speaking about it was like the ownership of himself and kind of the assumption that the girl was going to be down with this. It made me sort of reflect on a societal level how men, they're socialized with the assumption already there that this is a viable idea. Whereas women tend to be, how do we shape ourselves into what the chef might want? That is a frustrating place, but maybe that frustration has also led to a bit of defense. Let's say that guy on Below Deck was very clear, right, about like, I'm just looking for this, right? So he was sort of commanding what he was looking for, and it wasn't that appealing. But once we have that clarity of, I'm looking for this, It just means that you're able to get through things faster. You can't circumvent the try or the dating or anything else. That's what leads us to this. So I don't want you to be hard on yourself because you feel like you invested eight weeks or 10 weeks. That's just kind of part of it. And the first 90 days, by the way, are so important because that's when the wheels come off. That's when the mask comes off. So if you're investing... 30, 60, 90 days, and you find out somebody's just not ready, please don't be hard on yourself. That is average. That is normal, right? To invest that kind of time. It's very difficult to do what we're asking you to do in a date or a phone call or in a dating profile. And people feel the need to do that. They're like, let me just take care of everything up front so that I don't have to burn time, that I don't have to invest my heart and potentially get it broken. That's just not the way dating and love and life works. I just think you might be a little fatigued after a while because I get the feeling that you put a lot of your heart into things and you're so kind and you're so loving with these people. And I'm sure they appreciate it. They feel nurtured by you. It's probably the reason why you actually have a lot of opportunities. You're not calling us and saying there's a dearth of opportunity with men. You're actually saying I'm meeting them, but they're all not available. But the positive is that you're drawing people into you. You're just giving them too much of your time. Does that resonate, Sarah? Oh, it does, yeah. But I do see what you're saying about you have to get back up on the horse. You know, and I think I I keep doing that. But when you've been kicked off so many times, do you want to ride that horse? (laughs) Yes, you do. When you realize that you are the queen. When you realize that you are in charge. That you are the one creating your life and manifesting it. And it's not about blaming. So when I'm speaking to you this way, it's not about blaming you. It's about giving you this like bolster of responsibility and awareness so that you're charting your own course, that you're saying, hey, this is how I want to be treated. This is how much love I want. And oh, you're not able to give it to me? Okay. And that, yes, it can sting, but that you start getting out of these things relatively unscathed because you've got to keep going Otherwise, you could sit on the bench, but that's not where it's happening, right? You want love, don't you? I mean, we all do, yeah. Yeah. So think about all the great guys that are out there. There's so many good guys that actually want a relationship. I have men that call me and come to me and they get emotional because they can't seem to find somebody like you. Sarah said earlier something that I think we hear a lot, which is there's a specific person out there. You know, I know this wasn't my person or he wasn't my person. What I worry about is with the idea 
that there is someone sort of made for us that potentially we're only compatible with that one thing. And it's a matter of like searching the universe for that thing. I can speak to that and I can say that that's just rubbish. I don't believe that because that would make finding love virtually impossible. I remember I was asked to write a book about finding your soulmate. I turned it down because I didn't believe in that. I think there are many soulmates and lots of opportunities. And it also depends on where we're at, where they're at. So no, I don't believe that. I just think that there's somebody that we meet that ends up being our choice because they're on the same path at the same time. And at that time of our lives, we want the same thing and it just works and we commit to it. But no, I don't think that the search for love should be exhausting. I just think if we stop looking at it as a search and more of an experience and that we're gaining every time that we're dating. Like working out? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, okay. So you work out, right? And we, <laughs> I used to think if I worked out once, I'm like, look at my body. Like it looks so good. And like nobody could tell, right? But we felt better. So even though we hadn't achieved our result yet, we were working towards something. And so if you look at dating, like, okay, I have loved, I have lost, like it's been an experience. I've had my heart broken. I've broken a few hearts. I'm going to keep moving because A, I don't have a choice if I want to be with somebody. So taking a break from dating means you don't trust yourself because dating is just relating. It's continuing to connect with people and talk with people believe the best in people, but also don't check your brain at the door. I think my biggest question for you, Sarah, is, you know, you're looking for quality and I want to know what you think quality is. Someone that has your same values, somebody that's aligned with your intelligence, your morals, and you want the same things out of life. And if we asked you, what is the one word? How do you want to feel when you're with somebody? One word. Safe. What does safety mean to you? You feel very adored and cherished and you know that they love you and you know that they don't have other women that they're looking at or going to. Okay. So loyalty, how are you adored and, and cherished? With their time, their affection, they make you feel special. They make you feel loved. Okay. So what if I were to tell you that a man could be adoring, could give you his time and even affection, and I'm not even talking physical on a first, second, and third date. I believe you because I've seen it. <laughs> so I know a lot of these guys can love bomb and they can throw it on really thick in the beginning. So I'm not saying that everybody that starts that way can end that way. But affection is also affectionately speaking to you. It's giving you time because on that date, he's not rushing through the date. He's not looking around at other people, okay? He's giving you focus. He's adoring you because he makes sure that you get in your Uber before he gets in his. He's calling you to make sure you got home okay, right? He makes a plan and he's sticking to it. He doesn't cancel plans on you unless there's a big emergency. So all of this adoration and cherishing and loyalty and time and affection, they show up quickly long before a man is committed to you because that's just the way he lives his life. My husband had all of those traits with everybody he dated before me, not just with me. And that's how we figure this stuff out. Are they already leading their life in this way? Do they already give themselves time? Do they already give their friends time? Did they give this to me in the beginning, even before there was any kind of deep love and commitment? It's not like somebody changes their value system just because they're in love. So where is he? <laughs> Keep going, girl. 
if you think about it, like people go, oh, that relationship failed or I was traumatized by that. What we aren't looking at is who was I when I first met that person? What did I overlook? My body talked to me earlier on. I just chose to ignore it. I chose to give this person a chance because I had hope and I believed in them. Not just what did I learn that I hate, but what did I learn about me? What new layer did I add to sort of my dating CV so that I can carry it on and meet the next person? Every relationship helps you grow. And for whatever reason, it hasn't been your time yet. You're hitting a pattern. And anytime we hit a pattern over and over and over that isn't good for us, it's not just bad luck. I hate to tell you. Actually, I love to tell you that because bad luck means you're not in the power seat. If you go, wait a minute, I keep attracting people who don't give me my biggest love thing, which is time, then I must not be showing up as that early on enough. It's one thing to say it, but it's one thing to be it early on and hold that bar real high. You just haven't met anybody that has given you that kind of focus. But I promise you, if they're giving 50, 60% away over here and they've got 40% over here or 70, 30, you can feel it. And this is why you don't get to take notes from your girlfriends because what might be okay for them isn't okay for you. We can't borrow each other's love languages. I love the idea of like our friends being useful in specific instances, but to be an influencer over uh, personal choices and desires, I think that's giving them too much power sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. We've all seen that. Like if a guy's friend says something like, oh, she's not that hot or whatever, and the guy is like, oh, God, I'm reframing this now in my head. And the same thing happens with women, and we give our friends too much weight sometimes. Yeah, because our friends love us, right? So we go to them for nourishment and feedback and encouragement. And because they love us and because their objective is to see us, hopefully, you know, safe and happy, they're not necessarily there to, you know, make us uncomfortable for that period of growth or what is good for them, right? That's why we hear the, well, good riddance, he didn't deserve you. Instead of really sitting down, like a good friend will sit down with you and go, wait a minute, before we say good riddance, what really happened there? Or I don't know, because what's okay for me may not be okay for you. That's why I never tell anybody you're crazy for wanting that or you're crazy for thinking that because what you feel is 100% accurate and real. And that's why we have to do more tuning in than going to everybody around us and going, what do you think, Kathy? What do you think, Susan? It's really about what do I think? Because I'm not crazy. <laughs> My husband has said, sometimes you're too interested in the romance and the time. I'm like, well, buddy, like that's who I am. Like that's okay for me. And I know myself so well that I don't have to second guess. And so if I were out there dating all over again, I would hold my bar higher, but I would do it with a lot of grace and kindness and warmth. I wouldn't get hurt if somebody couldn't meet me. I would just keep moving. Sarah, did we give you some good food for thought here? You definitely did, Anna. And thank you so much to the both of you. Thank you, Sarah, so thank much. Thank you, Sarah. Stay positive. It's coming. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.